You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. Let me pray before we sit down, and I'm just going to ask God's blessing on you. Lord, um, I know people mean it as a compliment when they say you make the word come alive, but Lord, I, I can't think of a greater insult to a minister. Your word is already alive. It's living, breathing, sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to come alive to your word, which is already alive. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister deeply and touch every heart present in the hearing of my voice. And, Lord, that you would instill this this, uh, spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. San Diego needs a a dose of your presence, your spirit upon the fear that has enveloped them. And I pray, God, that you would use Awaken to bring that. Thank you for my brothers and sisters and their encouragement. What a joy it is to be in their presence. We love you, Lord. We ask you to be glorified. Speak to us now. May man decrease that your spirit might increase. And we commit this all to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Relax. Uh, By the word... By the way, the word amen means uh, let's eat, I think. No, I'm just kidding. So I'm going to share with you the passage of Scripture that the Lord put on my heart momentarily. Um, and the reason why I want to pause on that is because that, that the passage of Scripture came on Wednesday when I was visiting uh, Awaken, and Pastor Jurgen asked me to share. And in the midst of just looking around and seeing all the young people present uh, at the time I was speaking, I was deeply touched by that. And I, I leaned over and I whispered to Jurgen uh, just a couple of passages that were on my heart. And he said, that's a word from the Lord. You need to share that. And I, I said, all right. <laughs> so that means now I have to come up with a sermon and put it all together. <laughs> but I do believe it is for Awaken. Pastor Matt, when you, you talked about um, this idea that you changed the name and it was prophetic, you know... Um, There's never a revival without an awakening. You have to awaken to the law of God. And they say that revival's like Judgment Day. You you start to see, like Josiah did, when the the book of the law is opened, you say, wait a minute, it's jacked up because we we have failed to obey this. Where was this the whole time? You can read about that. And he opened the law. He's a young guy. He was 18 years old. He opened it up. He said, what in the world? This is why we're all screwed up. We haven't been following this. And prior to that, he was doing what his forefathers did. You collect the money, you build the building. Yeah, but you obey the law. And and Christians have abandoned the law. I'm not talking about legalism. We've abandoned the law in the application of the public square. And, And I'll show you what I mean. And I was sharing with Daniel earlier. He's the guy who's been driving us around or will be today. I told Daniel, I said, in Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples up to Caesarea Philippi. And he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say Jeremiah. He says, yes, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. He says, upon this rock, I will build my, no, that, didn't, that word didn't come until 400 years later. I don't know where you got that word church. That, that, that's not, get a new translation. It's not church. 
That's not church at all. As a matter of fact, William Tyndale got burned at the stake because he refused to put that word church in. He was hung, then he was burned. He was the first one to translate the Bible into the English language from the original Greek and Hebrew. The guy was brilliant. And they killed him. Because the last thing they wanted was the church to be involved in the word ecclesia. You see, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. This, this, this was a secular term. Jesus co-opted it. He didn't say synagogue, which is a religious term. He didn't use temple. He said ecclesia. And above the door of every ecclesia in, Ko- in Koine Greek, in Greek society, when these folks would gather, an ecclesia, ready for this? It was the public square. It's where citizens of the community would gather to make laws on how they would live together. Well, cut my legs off and call me shorty. <laughs> and above the, the door of every ecclesia was isonomia and eleutheria, liberty and equality. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Probably not good terms for a pastor to use, but I think you're picking up what I'm putting down. And I heard that you guys really help you when you're... (laughs) The point is, the point is, somewhere along the line, they looked and they said, we don't want the church in the public square. And so they, they indoctrinated you. Oh, you grew up with this one. You bought it hook, line, and sinker. Suckers! You can't legislate morality. What moron came up with that line? Every law is based on morality. Here's my favorite. Christians shouldn't be in politics. And this, is, this is shocking to some of the younger folks. They're like, oh, dude, where are you going with this? Politics. Poly meaning many, ticks meaning blood-sucking parasite. (laughs) Actually, let me give you Aristotle's definition of politics. (laughs) Aristotle's definition of politics, you ready? It's the highest form of community. It combines morality with sociability. How do we get along? You don't do politics? Right. You do politics in your marriage, in your family, in your church. Oh, but when it comes to the society in which we live, oh, we don't do politics. Why? Because politics is dirty. Well, so is the church. What's your point? Well, well, I'm tired of voting for the lesser of two evils. Unless Jesus Christ is running for office, you'll always be voting for the lesser of two evils. Get over it. You are contending in the public square for how people are to live. Galatians 3 says the law is a school teacher, guardian, to point us to Christ and keep us safe until faith comes. And the Bible speaks on immigration. The Bible speaks on capitalism. The Bible speaks on economics. The Bible speaks on every single topic on the face of the earth on how we should live. And somewhere along the line, we abandon that. And now we're looking at a culture that is imploding. We're losing a constitutional republic, and the church is under assault, and we're losing a First Amendment, and we don't even know where that came from. How did we get that First Amendment? What is a constitutional republic? Why is it better than any other oligarchy in the 6,000 years of recorded history? Why is this nation special? I don't know. We stopped teaching history. Even though the Scripture says, remind them, teach them, instruct your children, we abandoned that. Josiah didn't. We did. 
And now we wonder why we have the 1619 Project and a complete revisionist of history, and we're watching as we're being pitted against one another, and we're watching as freedom is dissipating, and we're rolling over and giving it to the government of tyranny. And you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, that's a little pushy, is it? Three to five million Jews were in slavery. And you say, well, the law is there to show us that we can't keep it. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Yeah, that's true. That's Ephesians. But in Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed God. It was accredited to him as righteousness. That's also confirmed in Romans and Galatians. He was saved by grace too. So what's your point? Yeah, but the law. Well, if Abraham saved by grace in Genesis 15, why 430 years later did they give the law? I'll tell you why. Three to five million Jews were enslaved in Egypt, cried out to God for a deliverer, because God hates it when mankind is enslaved. And human beings are sinful, and they want to enslave other human beings and subject them. That's what we do. And it doesn't matter if, we, if, if God did a magic wand and made us all the same color. We would still divide over the color of our eyes. Did you see the way the green eyes were looking at me? We will find anything to subject someone else to enslavement. That is evil. That is in the heart of every human being. And they cry out to God. God sends a deliverer, Moses. He confronts Pharaoh. Let my people go. God said, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Moses is like, you shouldn't have said that. I'm telling you, you're going to be in trouble. But Pharaoh says, I'll show you who I am. The people were crying out for freedom. Pharaoh says, who is God that I should obey him? Pharaoh says, I'll show you what I can do. He doubles the brick output and reduces the materials. They're already enslaved and exhausted. You know what the Jewish people do, the Israelites? They complain to Moses. Oh, people want freedom. They just don't want to work for it. You want someone to take care of you. You'll give up your, you'll, you'll give up your freedom for security, and you'll get neither, by the way. And they'll frighten you with a virus that has a 99-point survival rate. And you're like, oh, oh. And then the 10 plagues, three of which the Israelites went through, God vanquishes the Egyptian army, puts them in the wilderness. Their clothes don't wear out. Their shoes don't wear out. Food provided for three to five million people where there isn't food, manna, bamama bread, bamana kadi. And then water where there isn't water. He goes up on Mount Sinai. God gives him a downloaded moral app. First five commandments, our relationship with the Lord. Second five commandments, our relationship with each other. Sounds like political. Morality and sociability, how do we get along? He comes back down the mountain, and Israel is in debauchery. Golden calf. Partying. He says, what are you doing? Turn off this noise, incessant. And he instructs the children on the Decalogue, and he places it in the center of the community. Now, here's the kicker. All the miracles I listed, here's the best one. Three to five million people lived together for 40 years without a police force or a standing army because they had moral knowledge. Oh, but we don't do politics. We've abdicated that. 
And now we're wondering why California's in a free fall. I was born here in 64. In 68, we had the fifth largest GDP, state of the future. We had built the California aqueduct. It was a marvel in engineering. The world just marveled at it. State of the future. And now we've, we've been preaching the gospel, but we've been avoiding politics. And now we're no longer the fifth largest GDP. We're the sixth. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We have the highest debt in the nation. We have the highest poverty, the highest homelessness. We, we're the authors of no-fault divorce. We're, we're the authors of the most secular, progressive, sexual education curriculum on the face of the earth. Oh, here's, here's the best part. 52 years we've, we've been avoiding the public square. And, and we've been declining. And the whole time, especially with Calvary Chapel, we've had 10,000% growth here in California since 1968. And that's conversion growth. We've got churches everywhere, buildings like you can imagine. We've got radio stations. There's more Calvary Chapels, what I'm a part of, in California than Dunkin' Donuts. But we don't do politics. And we've been doing this since 1968. We've seen people raise their hand, come to Christ. We've walked them through discipleship. We've taught through all 66 books of the Bible multiple times. And now their kids can't live here. And they live in a state that has aborted more children than the entire population of Canada. But we don't do politics. Now, I get it. This is all new to us. And we don't start to miss anything until we've lost it. And I was so blessed because, Matt, when you guys came and Jurgen and all them, when you guys came, we thought we were in this all alone. And then all of a sudden, this cheerleading squad comes. It just blew the doors off the place. And I wanted to say, especially to Jurgen and, and all the pastors that are involved with Awaken, and I want to say to all the congregation, this is such a specifically special church because there's youth. Usually when you're talking politics, it's to people with the hair color I have. <laughs> we're, we're one foot in the grave. And the young people are like, yeah, I don't do politics. And you know what? They're stupid. But not you guys. You're young. And you're informed. You're different. You have a spine. And you're standing in the midst of a city that is attacking you. Now, granted, the numbers have declined a little bit, I imagine, because it's Gideon's army. I mean, whittle it down to a manageable size, Lord, but one person in God constitutes a majority. But this, this young generation at Awaken is ready to light it up. Now, you, you can't keep clapping like that because I've only got 15 minutes and you can't steal my time. I'm kidding. Now, I want to tell you what the Lord put up my heart when I was sitting next to Jurgen. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring the passage up momentarily, but I'll set it up this way. I have some heroes in my life, and um, Christmas time, especially the first week of December, is a hard one for me. I was born and raised in San Diego. Uh, Coronado, to be exact. I went to Coronado High School and graduated there. I was born in the Coronado Hospital, and my family still lives in Coronado. 
My mom and dad have passed. My mom died in 2010. My dad died in 16. My mom loved Christmas. She'd just go all out. And uh, she loved politics. I, I, don't, I didn't grow up going to church. My, um, I don't remember ever praying with my folks other than a memorized prayer that we, I don't even remember what it was. It was like, sit down with us so silent, cast our friend the scene who we love best, and by their presence make us feel so You know, it's like, whatever we said, let's eat. But I don't remember reading the Bible or really praying with them. I, I don't ever recall going to church. But they had, they, they loved the nation. They had a respect for God. They were moral people. My dad was a naval officer, Navy captain, three tours of Vietnam. My mother was the president of the Republican women in, uh, in Coronado. And depend, oh, there you go. All right. It's a couple of people happy about that. And half the room probably isn't. <laughs> it's okay. But I will say this. She was active. She cared about her community. And she walked precincts. She taught me how to do that. My dad ran for city council twice, lost. Hopefully I've redeemed that for him. But I love them and I miss them. December's a tough time in that regard because I think of my folks, my mom specifically. I want to tell you a story. Um, May 26, 1975, it was Memorial Day. Um, and I, I had the day off, I was 11 years old. And my dad uh, says, Rob, get in the car. And he'd just come back, he'd been back from Vietnam. And the fall of Saigon had happened. Uh, South Vietnam fell to North Vietnam in April of 75. And uh, May 26th, my dad says, Rob, get in the car. We're going for a drive. And it was in Coronado. And I got in the car, and I didn't know what we were doing. It was my day off. I wanted to hang out with my friends. He said, no, get in the car. And my dad was patriotic. He'd lay down stripes. I'd see stars. So I obeyed him. <laughs> I got in the car. We, we drove north along the coast. And uh, we get to Camp Pendleton, the Marine base. And my father pulls in, they give him a crisp salute. Navy captain, that's a colonel in the, Air, in the Marine Corps, and they salute him. He asks for directions, they point it, and he starts going deep into the inner par portions of Camp Pendleton. We come over a ridge, and I'm 11 years old, and as far as I can see, my eyes can make out there's tents, as far as they would go. And I saw all these tents, and, and I didn't know what it was. My dad parks, he, we get out, and he says, come with me, son. And I walk with him, we come up to the desk, and there's a, a Marine corporal, he salutes my father. He says, yes, sir, and he says, I, I have a number here. Uh, looks through the card catalogs, he says, yes, sir, it's gonna be aisle six, uh, section ta-ta-ta-ta, and we go walking, and it's, it's 50,000 Vietnamese refugees living in tents, and, and language and smells I've never heard, and, and I, I, we get to a tent, and my father's outside, and a man comes out, and he, and he salutes my father, and he says, Major, there's no room for salutes now. You're family. He says, let's go home. He says, uh, Captain, since we last communicated, I married, and my wife is with me. He says, well, let's meet her. And this rural Vietnamese woman comes out. Lon. She didn't speak a word of English. She'd been raised in a rural Vietnamese village. He says, this is my wife. He says, well, good. He says, let's get in the car and go home. He says, Rob, meet your brother and sister. I said, okay. <laughs> she doesn't speak any English. He does. He sits in the front seat with my father. They're communicating about all their experiences in Vietnam. I'm in the back seat with a woman who doesn't speak any English, and she's scared to death. 
And we start giggling and I make hand signals and just gestures and I figure out and we end up becoming close. She's precious. And I grew six foot two. She remained, you know, tiny. She'd watch me sprout. And I remember my mom had just uh, remodeled the kitchen and my mother was a meticulous housekeeper. She'd put these lines in the carpet and you'd have to fly from one room to the next. And uh, she says, she says, um, you know, we're going to remodel the kitchen. They do it. Brand new carpet, the whole bit. Mrs. Nguyen, Lon, she's cooking dinner for her new husband. She's got a new husband, a new home, a new country. She's scared to death. My mother hated the smell of fried fish. She didn't like anything fried at all. You fry anything, you, you leave. She's frying fish in my mother's new kitchen. It catches fire. What any woman would do in a rural village is kick it into the dirt. So she knocks the pan into the carpet. I'm not amazed by the fire. I'm just waiting how my mother's going to kill this woman. I'm like, this is going to be good. They put out the fire. The woman is, you know, Lon is cowering. She's crying. She's overwhelmed. And I'm like, oh, you have no idea what's coming your way. And my mother doesn't do a thing. I go, Mom, why didn't you get angry at her? She, she just burned your new carpet. She said, Rob, they just lost their country. We can get new carpet. They didn't know the Lord, but they knew freedom. And they extended it to a family that would go on to have, I think, three or four children that would all excel, get master's degree and higher. They were all at my parents' funeral. My parents were good people. And I look at my parents, I think, I wish I could be half the person they are. Almost done. This is an interesting week because this day, the first Sunday of December, 79 years ago, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. This day, 79 years ago. Sunday, everyone was relaxing. My godfather was there. He was the, at one point, he was the highest ranking survivor of the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was 99 years young, and he had been a lieutenant on the USS Casson on December 7, 1941. Japanese came in, bombed his ship, the harbor was on fire. His shipmates were dead. He ended up getting a silver star for his gallant actions that day. He went on to fight in World War II, became a rear admiral. I'm named after him, Rear Admiral Robert Broussard Early. He's bigger than life. December last thing, December 1st, 1955, this week, Amazing lady. There had actually been a 15-year-old girl who did the same thing, but they didn't want to take a minor to court because they didn't think they'd win in a Supreme Court decision in 1955. So they waited for a woman by the name of Rosa Parks who stood in defiance to bus segregation in Montgomery, Alabama. And I love what she wrote. She said, I felt the Lord would give me the strength to endure whatever I had to face. God did away with all my fear. 
It was time for someone to stand up or in my case, sit down. I refused to move. She started the civil rights movement. It was Reverend King who would see what she did in 55 and he would stand up on December 5th of that same week. They'd bomb his house. But that woman started, in essence, the movement that would change the world. Now I say all that because we look at people like this and we think, if we could be half the man or woman. And that brings me to the text. If you would, turn to 2 Kings chapter 2. They might put it up on the screen, I don't know. 2 Kings chapter 2, it's going to be verses 9 through 14. My dad used to say, how I treat others is who I am. I miss them. I'm inspired by them. They love this country, and I just feel like, Lord, I'm not doing enough. And then I, I read this passage, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 9. So it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away from you? And Elisha said, please, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall be so, not be so. Then it happened as they continued on and uh, talked that suddenly the chariots of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. What he was saying is the strength of Israel is not in its soldiers or its government. It's in the spirit of the Lord. And he cries out. And so he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes, tore them in two. Elisha did. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him. He went back and he stood by the bank of the Jordan and he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he also had struck the water, it was divided in this, this way and that and Elijah crossed over. He willingly put the mantle on him and he knew that it came with a lot of burden. Almost done, turn to 2 Kings 13. Trust me, the message will work and I've got four minutes, I'll pull it off. 2 Kings 13, we're going to pick up at verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. By the way, prophets die too. We all get sick. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Does that sound familiar? This is what Elisha said to Elijah. Now Joash is saying it to Elisha. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and some arrows. And so he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. And so he put his hand on it and Elisha put his hand on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it and Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows. And so he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And so he struck three times and he stopped. Now this is the kicker. And the man of God was angry with him. Everyone say the word angry. It, 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 it's way beyond the English understanding. And the man of God was angry with him and he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike only three times. So the point is this. Elisha 
was the mother man of Israel. Elijah was this guy who called down fire. He was brutal. Elisha was a people person. He was very tender. And you just didn't see him get angry. Elisha was the mother man of Israel. He's just real tender. And, and he, he's watching Elijah. He's following him as he's getting ready to be taken. And everyone knew it was going to happen. And he goes to him. He says, what do you want from me? Elijah says, what do you want from me? Just leave me alone. Quit following me. He, he was just bruff or gruff. And, and, and he just brass. And he says, well, what do you want from me, Elisha? He says, I want a double portion. He says, that's not for me to give. He says, you'll know if the mantle falls and you see me taken up, you'll get a double portion. What he's saying is, I know I'm going to get the mantle to do the calling of a prophet, but I need the spirit of God in order to accomplish it. I need a double whammy. He says, all right. And he, he asked for a double portion. Now, Elisha is now dying. He's aged, he's feeble, he's sick. And Joash whose grandfather had started to turn from the Lord and they started going back to the golden calves and the nation was imploding. And he's a young king and he comes in, he's, he's gone the way of his grandfather and his father and he's not following the Lord and now he's watching the only one who has delivered Israel, the only one who's had any power, the only one who's had any, any backbone, any spine. And he comes to him, he sees him dying and he says, Elisha, he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel. And he's, he's lamenting his passing. And Elisha's like, dude, and, and this, I think this is how it happened. Hey, go get the arrows and the bow and bring them over here. He, Joash brings him over. He's like, what's up, old man? Put it in the open the east window. No, the east window. Right? Now come over here. Put the that's right. And he puts his hand over Joash because he doesn't have strength. And okay, pull it back. There we go. Let it go. Do it again. And what he says is. You're declaring war on Assyria. You're declaring war on them. They have had their, they'd have their knee on your neck. And I want the people delivered. Declare war. Set them free. Contend with tyranny. Do something for your people. Set the captives free. I tell you what, if that had been my call, I would have blanketed that field with arrows. This young kid's like, Can we stop now? I'm exhausted. And Elisha's like, okay, strike the ground with the arrows. All right, old man. Can we go home now? And the scripture says he got angry. The word angry for the mother man of Israel, you've never seen Elisha angry. The scripture says he exploded. What is your problem? I am old. I am dying. Later in the passage, you're going to see that my rotting bones will have more power than you completely have. You have youth. You have vitality. But you have no spine and no conviction. And all you can say, Rob McCoy, is you want to be half the man as your dad. You want to be half the man as your godfather. Some of you want to be half the woman as Rosa Parks. 
or half the man is Reverend Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King? Half? They put everything on the line. You look like Elisha did to Elijah and what Elisha was saying to Joash. And I say to the young generation, don't be half the man as me. Be twice the man as me. You're young. Now you need zeal with knowledge and you will be unstoppable. I'm, I've got one foot in the grave, I got the gray hair. You are young, you're powerful. You are fearless and God hasn't given you a spirit of fear but a power of love and a sound mind. Twice, twice the man or woman, that is you. May God's spirit fall upon you, Lord. May this be a word to the youth of Awaken. They are not feeble or cowardice like Joash. No, Lord, they are twice the men, twice the women. They are profoundly gifted and called and by your spirit with that double portion, I pray that you would use them for your glory mightily in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenchurch.com.